Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real-life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. My guest is Emma Powell. She's a real estate entrepreneur that is doing syndications, has a fund, and we talk about some of the different asset classes they're in. And what I like to kind of dig into is people's journey going from W2. She was in marketing. Her husband was in the startup world and how they made the, the leap into real estate entrepreneurship. So starting out with single family projects and then moving into larger projects, mobile homes, multifamily things like that. And we spent a lot of time talking about the fund structure, how they put that together, why they're doing that. Um, and it was just another great kind of entrepreneurial story of a family that's gone from the W2 world to the real estate entrepreneur world. So I think you're going to enjoy it. We'll have a word from our sponsors and get right into it. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by DJE Texas Management Group, a San Antonio, Texas-based real estate investment firm with a track record of transacting on several hundred million dollars of multifamily land and industrial deals throughout Texas. DJE's been in business for over a decade and is approaching 100 team members in San Antonio. To learn more about DJE, visit djetexas.com or the link in the show notes of this episode. This episode's also brought to you by apartmenteducators.com a complete ecosystem for professionals to learn how to find, finance, and operate large multifamily properties for profit. You can get started with a free mini course and learn more at apartmenteducators.com or visit the link in the notes. Emma Powell, welcome to the show. Great to have you. How are you? Hey, thanks, Devin. I'm doing great. We are traveling full-time, just chilling in the RV. I was sitting today. We just bought an RV park and we we're driving the golf cart around the park, just um, yeah. kind of doing the takeover in person. And I was just sitting there in this golf cart on a beautiful day, all those fishing lake. And I was feeling like a little nervous about something. And I thought, what? I have nothing to be nervous about. Like, this is the life. This is what we've been working so hard for. So yeah. it's pretty good. I love it. I love it. So I want to talk about that park. I have a, I have a lot of questions, but let's start. With kind of an intro, your background, always love to hear how people got interested in real estate, what the trigger was, and kind of the on-ramp was for you getting into this business. Yeah, I it's a it, it's a great a great thing to ask yourself, like what gets you into it? Because everybody's a little bit different. You know, we came up through a tech startup world. My husband's an IT guy mm -hmm. and was working for various data tech, uh, data science startups. And so I did my, when I went back to college as an adult, I did my internship with one of his companies. And then that founder was a serial founder. He left that company, asked me to come with him and be his uh, marketing director, basically for his new startup. And that was kind of the world that we were in. And I felt like it was, it was not for me as a marketer, right. But for, for him as the founder to always having to be come up with the next best thing, like you get this great idea, you're going to go out, you're going to build this company, you're going to build this product and, and hope that people like it. And I think that, that was the thing that was hardest for me in that tech startup world is never knowing, like, is this going to be any good? I mean, I came from a graphic design world and a marketing world where, you know, it's doggy dog. You're always having to one up. You're always having to stay ahead of the crowd. And I think that that just made me very tired having to be creative on demand. And so I was looking for a job or a business or something that I could do that would make a 
a lot of money because I have a lot of kids and I didn't want to be away from them for a long time. And I was just sitting around thinking like, what can I do? Because my skill set, I don't know, probably making 50, 60 grand a year. And that was a full-time job. And there was no way that I was going to spend that much time away from my kids making that kind of money. If you're going to leave the home and go out and do and, and spend time away from your family, it better be worth it. And so I just racked my brains and I was trying to come up with something. And we had made a little bit of money in real estate on our personal homes. And I told my husband, I said, we don't need all the money from that house that we just sold. We can put a smaller down payment on our next house, take the extra cash of equity that we came from that. We did a, basically a live-in flip or two years and yeah. redid the whole thing. And I said, why don't we just take that extra money and go buy a rental house? And he said, I like this idea. And at first we were just trying to do it the Dave Ramsey way. Like we're going to pay cash for a rental house. So we thought we'd put this, this down payment on our personal home with a mortgage and then take the rest of it and go buy like a townhouse or something. So I saw these two townhouses that I really liked and I wasn't really able to decide between which one I wanted to buy because pros and cons. And I said, I know this is crazy here. Dave Ramsey might kick us out of his uh, friend group because, you know, we hang out on the weekends and stuff. I want him to like me, right? Oh. And so what we ended up doing is where I just thought, what if we bought both of these rental houses and I got a mortgage on both of them? And my realtor said, hallelujah, this is how real estate investors actually get things done. Uh, and yeah. I had seen the light. And the funny thing is we ended up buying neither one of those houses because I also at the same time discovered bigger pockets and I discovered real estate investing association. I started attending my local club. And I found out about wholesaling and I thought, okay, these guys have the cheap houses that I want. So I bought a couple of houses from a wholesaler instead of these turnkey uh, rental townhouses and was off to the races there. What market were you in when you were buying those, those first houses? At the time, it was Salt Lake City. So we're from Austin. We lived there for 20 years. My husband was laid off from that tech job. And when that founder left, my husband's job kind of went away. <laughs> and so basically, uh, we looked for a job and moved cross country to Salt Lake City. I think I got a little lucky. I think the RIAs in Salt Lake City are some of the best in the country from what I've learned since. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've got some friends that are investors out there in Salt Lake. Seems like a seems like a good spot. Yeah, a lot of competition, sure. but also a great network of people actually doing the work and just working together to collaborate. Yeah, yeah. Was was the meetups and things you were going to initially kind of all around this uh, buy single family from wholesaler and then you know renovate and refinance it, or was there different asset classes, or what were you what were you getting into at those kind of initial meetings? It was really all over the place. In fact, uh, we had three active RIAs in my area, and I went to all three of them. And the first one that I went to of the, of the Salt Lake RIA, um, somebody was talking about his commercial syndication. So just listening to him talk about a, an apartment complex, a large commercial purchase, sitting there in the audience. And I was sitting on this pile of money at the time because we, I, at that point, hadn't bought anything. And I thought, this is really where it's at. We all know that B2B in the data science industry, our, our best customers were our B2B customers. Uh, I was also running a real estate and wedding photography business at the time. And I knew that my my commercial clients were always going to be a bigger markup and profit margin than my consumer clients. And I, I just thought they're that this, we, we really need to just get into this commercial thing. And my husband grew up in a college town where all his rich farmer neighborhoods own like 12 plexes and 14 plexes and would put students in them at the local university. So it wasn't that far out of our realm of thinking that we could do something like this. Uh, but I think I just needed to be around other people who were doing it. 
And looking back on our time in Austin, we actually had a lot of friends who were doing this and we just didn't know because either they talked about it and we weren't listening or they weren't talking about it because they thought we had no money or they just, it just wasn't coming up. Um, but looking back, we had dozens of friends who were doing these real estate type of activities, even in commercial real estate. And now we talk about it and we connect about it. But at the time, for whatever reason, it just, it just wasn't connecting for us. And it's interesting. Yeah. It's always, it's always kind of right there. So that's great. Yeah. I, I agree with you completely that you've got to get around people that are doing it kind of, kind of anything really, any interest or pursuit you have, that's the, one of the keys. Um, so were your eyes kind of open that, Hey, we need to go into bigger deals or more scalable deals or, and how long did you kind of stay in that single family realm before, you know, gosh, we kicked off the podcast talking about a mobile home park that you bought. So that's a little bit bigger deal. What did that transition look like for you guys moving up to larger type deals? I, I don't think it's been a transition. I think it's been more of a diversification play because right now my husband no longer has a W-2. He was laid off again, basically retired last year. Yeah. And so we're just living off the backs of our small rentals. There's nothing that's going to cash flow faster than a single family or a small, like a duplex, triplex. You're going to get in there. You're going to get it turned around. You're going to get on the market and it will pay you every single month for the most part. So yeah. we had about 10 uh, small rentals. We've sold a couple of them, lease option, a couple more of them out uh, and as we've diversified into some other things. But I'm not, I haven't bought a single family or any small multi in several years, but at the same time, like that, that's how we're surviving. That's how we're getting our cash flow. And so our larger projects, we have a lot of equity in those projects and some of them pay distributions sometimes. But if we were trying to live full-time on our passive cash flow, it wouldn't be happening without our smaller portfolio. So we've introduced uh, some single family hard money loans back into what we're doing just right. for that cash flow, even though the returns are lower. And really just try to think more about not only yield investing, but also cash flow investing and how to balance those two competing needs so that we can both live on our passive cash flow right now, not have to have a nine to five and just be full-time investors. And also thinking about that higher yield that's going to help to grow our portfolio and continue to be able to grow that. So living on like the 4%, 8%, 10% rule and balancing those two things. And, and that's really where the RV park has come in because it cash flows immediately. It's a performing business. It doesn't really need a value add. We could, and we are planning on doing some value add, but it cash flows from day one. And it has some upside five years down the road or 10 years down the road when we end up selling it. And so being able to balance those two in a single project has been the unicorn that we've been looking for. Uh, but we will continue to do a more diverse base because it's not really uh, safe from a risk management standpoint to be really married to one asset class. And I think that the deception on social media is that, oh, yeah, multifamily this or that, because people are raising capital for those projects. But if we cracked open each other's portfolios, we would all see that we're very diversified across stocks, real estate, different types of real estate assets. And so I really try to create our fund in a way that reflected that diversity so that people could pick and choose where their goals are. Are they doing cash flow? Are they doing yield? Are they looking for short term, long term? because that's what we personally do. And I wanted my messaging on social media as I'm raising capital to better fit and better match what we're actually investing in ourselves. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So did you did I hear fund? Are you guys setting up a fund or funds to go acquire these assets? Correct. So I started a free investing club for joint venture partners about three years ago, and we have closed on five deals. Well, I, most of them are multifamily 
families. Some of them are performing, some are not. It's a rough time right now for real estate investors in general, but especially multifamily with some of the lending and, and the floating rate issues that it's been having in commercial real estate. And so really our, our small rentals are really have, have been what's saved us during um, this period of flux. And after a while of running the club, it was just a free club. There was no revenue model there. It was like my gym buddies and I would get together and look at deals and form joint ventures and go do projects together. And it was time to create a fund. We had enough people coming through the club that thought they wanted to be active real estate investors and joint venture partners and got into it and either decided not to do a deal at all, say, hey, I, I think this passive thing is actually a better fit for me. Or they would do a deal or two and decide like, I, I actually don't want to start a syndication business like I thought I did. And maybe they spent twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 on a mentorship program, had never done a deal, or they'd done one or two deals and they were frustrated and they just felt like, you know what, I just don't think this is for me. So it was a great opportunity for people to discover which direction they wanted to go. Do I want to scale my business or do I want to drop back to be a mostly a limited partner or just keep doing joint venture deals? And so a lot of them were just like, this isn't, this isn't for me. And I thought it's time to start a fund so that we can serve people who want to be completely passive as well as the club serving those who want to be a little bit more hands-on. Yeah, I like it. So how's the fund set up? Can we dive into the structure of it and what, how you set it up and you know what it's going into, what it pays, all that fun stuff? Yeah, I went to a mastermind a couple of years ago where the keynote speaker was John Pennington, and he is the founder of Bridge Investment Group. He's Bridger Pennington's dad, and uh, his brother was there, who's an attorney. And the the leader of the mastermind uh, had his uh, his grandma, his wife's grandma, had just passed away, and they wanted to buy her apartment building. She had like a twenty something unit apartment building in a town in Idaho where we were actually investing and had another apartment building. And he said, I don't know how to buy this thing. I, I want to buy it from the estate, but I don't know how. And I said, I can help you buy it. I've got another place five minutes from there, a property manager, construction crew, the whole nine yards. And he said, let's team up and do this. And so we partnered up with uh, a couple of people there at the event. And Bridger and his dad were really, uh, I guess, preaching the gospel of starting a fund. And we followed this around for a couple of months. And ended up kind of rejecting the idea because I didn't really want to start a new business or scale a business. I was trying to retire. I was getting to the point where I was feeling uncomfortable accepting investor capital because you never want to put capital in a deal where the sponsor says things like, I just, I'm looking for passive income so I can retire early. That's just not the message. They should be running a business where they're actively and in an organized fashion running these assets that you're investing in. You need somebody who's doing it active. And if that wasn't me, I'd just didn't really want to start a fund. So I toyed around with it for about three years, just, and it just kept coming back, kept coming back. And I kept resisting, kept resisting. But out of the joint venture club arose some individuals who I really enjoyed working with. We had done four or five deals in this club together. They always said and did what they said. They were working hard. They were smart, picking up on things fast. And I just really enjoyed working with them. And after you've done a couple of deals with, with people, you know, what you're getting yourself into, right? And so I approached one of them and started talking, trying to talk him into starting a fund. And he kept saying, no, I don't really get it. I don't really understand it. Um, and and this whole time, I felt like, like I just would need him to wait. He was CEO of a large retail um, chain in Hawaii before we met up. He knows how to run a big business. I know how to do startups. So it took me about six months, but finally he came to me and said, I think I think this fund thing, we need to, we need to talk about this. So we launched the fund a little over a year ago, brought in several partners. And so it's a large operation. There are seven partners and we have some pretty big uh, growth uh, goals. And one of the reasons that I'm on board with it, even though I was trying to passive income retire early, 
once we hit that threshold of being able to quit our jobs, uh, we took a sabbatical, decided to launch the fund and just thought, you've got to keep doing something. You've got to stay engaged. And this this yep. thing that was burning inside of me had to come out or I never really would have been satisfied um, that I never pursued that journey and that goal. And so being around all these, these top level fund managers, um, partnering up with some of them on deals and just listening to way that that they talked and the the people that they were networking with, it just kind of got me into this fund world. And I decided, you know, we need to make this happen. So that's what we did. I love it. Yeah. There's a reason why people that have done well or had big exits continue to work. You know, you're, you're really not looking for that full-time lounging around life, especially as like a high performer or somebody that likes building things that that's the worst. I mean, for, for yeah. spurts, that's great. Recovery time vacations, family time. Awesome. Love all of it. But, um, kind of the last thing you want to do is permanently sit around. That's like, that's, that's what you do right before you die. <laughs> so, Yeah. And, and I, I'm from family that my parents were extremely active before they passed away, always learning. My dad was composing choir music in his, in his eighties. Like he was, he was a software developer in the seventies. I was just, just always in that world of making, doing, we were a maker family. He yep. built all of our houses, my husband's from a maker family. It's just, we're always off doing something, creating something and dreaming of something, learning something. And I tend to be one of those people who obsesses over things and goes down the rabbit hole. So my husband jokes now, he said, when you first came to me and said, I want to start a real estate business, he was like, yes, yes, finally, she's got an interest in a rabbit hole that's going to make us rich. Yeah. So he was very, very supportive. <laughs> that's good. It wasn't golf or whatever that you picked up. Exactly. Family. Um, that's great. I, I love the fund model. We started a fund. Uh, we're a year into a fund. I, I, same as you, resisted it for years. I really want to wrap my head around it. Um, but I love it. We're going to do more of it, you know, and, and, and kind of move away from deal by deal syndication, move more to fund model, which we're, we're already doing. Um, how did you structure it? Is it debt? Is it equity? Is it uh, evergreen? Is it uh, capped? Can we get dive into kind of the details on it? Yeah, great question. So a lot of technical details here. I love being able to share. I think if you inspire people, but you don't teach them how to do the thing, they just walk away frustrated. So let's let's uh, let's peel the skin off the cat here, however you say that, <laughs> to look look behind I heard the that one. But I I'm following. Yeah. I'm tracking. All right. <laughs> I, I just make them up. My kids accuse me of making them up. So um, <laughs> we're in Texas. The metaphors are just coming out like I can't even help it. <laughs> love it. Love it. Um, so we've got a 506C fund, which means that it is for accredited investors only. Uh, one of the reasons that we did that is because we wanted the ability to advertise the fund. A 506B fund cannot be advertised. It's word of mouth only. And we just didn't really feel like we had the network or the ability on social media to be able to attract enough investors to fill up a fund in a B model. As my attorney likes to say, he's like, I only deal with rich guys. And I'm like, well, I'm glad you know enough rich guys that you don't have to deal with anybody else. He was encouraging us to go the B route. And we just didn't really feel like we had the network in place. Uh, the other unexpected side effect of working with accredited investors only is that I feel like they're so close to being able to retire that they just need this little bit of nudge into financial freedom. And immediately they're talking about the nonprofits they're going to start, the volunteering they're going to do, the business that they're going to use to serve people. And they are just so close to exploding in this kind of give it back, uh, pay it forward mode that it's been really rewarding to watch people on the precipice go into that um, lifestyle of, of getting themselves out of the rat race and starting to think bigger about how they're going to give back to their communities. That was not an expected part of what we're doing, but it's been really enjoyable uh, for me to be able to help people who were in that position that we were in just a few years ago, making decent money, 
but extremely frustrated that our good intentions could not really be acted upon because we weren't really financially secure ourselves. So that's been extremely rewarding. And we may uh, end up someday, we're going to do fund two and fund three, right? But we'll probably do a crowdfund eventually so that we can help unaccredited investors or emerging investors at lower minimums be able to break into the game with the free education and all of that and be able to to break that open a little bit. But for right now, we've done the 506C model. Um, the designation that we've chosen is a 3C5 model, meaning that 55% of our fund has to be direct control real estate, which is either debt or joint ventures. So right. most of what we do is, is debt. The RV park is a joint venture. And then we have some gray area on what else the rest of us that we can invest in. So we're re really sticking to um, direct control and uh, notes. And we'll do a little bit of LP only investments with some of that, um, some of that extra uh, space in there. So that really allows us to be able to offer both debt and equity in a diversified way. Again, keeping with our personal feelings of we're all diversified. Let's share this diversification with our investors. And to do that, we're using an evergreen customizable fund on the platform Investor, which allows uh, investors to get on there and pick and choose a la carte which investments they like and which they don't like when they have money available or when they don't. It doesn't really matter. They can just drop drop it in there little by little. And at the end of the year, they get a single K-1. So it's a lot less for them to keep track of. So that's the model that we've chosen. What was the platform you mentioned? It's called Avestor, A-V-E-S-T-O-R-I-N-C.com. And it's a basically a SaaS platform allowing customizable funds to have unified accounting. And so that single K-1 comes in for everything they've done through our fund. It just makes it a lot easier for them to keep track of. And the nice thing is, is you have just one PPM that they sign. Yeah. Uh, they only have to turn in their accreditation letter, their, their uh, government ID one time or only every so often. And then each deal will have its own deal disclosures. So it's basically like a mini PPM for each deal, which is a couple of hundred dollars to prepare rather than tens of thousands of dollars to prepare. That allows us to do smaller deals. Uh, I think this last one that we did was like a half a million dollar raise. We had a $750,000 raise. And so it allows us to scale up into the larger deals as we're building our investor base. And it's also allowing us to do much, much larger deals if that's what we choose to do as we kind of scale into the future. So it was customizable not only for our investors, but also for us to be able to to start the fund and grow it in a, a reasonable way that fit our raise capacity with the potential to grow as our investor base grew. I love it. Thanks for the detail. You mentioned um, the 506C accredited only which is a net worth or an income kind of threshold. Basically the SEC saying, hey, you're, you're dealing with people that uh, ought to know better uh, and have some financial wherewithal. How are you guys handling the accredited verification? Are you, are you using some sort of a service? Are you getting a CPA letter? You know, sometimes that's a, a little bit of a speed bump, not much. And then for a, a credit investor that's doing a lot of this, they're used to that. But how are you guys handling that for your fund? Uh, investor handles that. It's actually really nice. So a free service that we were using before is called parallelmarkets.com. So in the club, if we're doing a 506C, even in a joint venture, we do require all the investors to be accredited because we're not holding an executive role. Even though we're a part of the general partnership, it's kind of a non-voting, almost board member type of role. And it's just to protect the investment and be somewhat involved uh, from that joint venture perspective. And so we were using parallel markets. You could either use a letter from your CPA or an attorney, or you could upload all your documents. If you're qualifying on net worth, that is a huge 
pain because you have to have every settlement statement from every property you've ever bought or that you're currently owning. You have to support that with the statements from your invested brokerage houses. Anything that shows that your net worth is above a million dollars, you need to upload. And so for me, it was easier just to have my CPA write me a letter. I did have CPAs decline writing me that letter. And so I kept looking for a CPA who specialized in real estate, really understood the space. Because the ones who declined were the ones who just really shouldn't have been doing my taxes anyway, because they may not have quite understood uh, real estate and what we were doing. And so when I found a CPA who really was a real estate specialist, he had no problem writing that letter. Um, Investors the same way. You can either upload your taxes if you're qualifying on income, super easy, two years of tax returns, you're kind of good to go. Uh, But if you're qualifying on net worth, it really is a lot easier to just get a letter from a professional and and have them certify that for you. Yep. Yep. Makes sense. How are you guys handling acquisitions? You mentioned there's a few partners on this. You've got diversity of assets that you're looking at. You mentioned notes, LP positions. Um, Deal flow is super important for all of us, right? And everybody, you know, handles that differently and and you're in different uh geographies and so forth so what does that look like for what does that acquisition machine look like for you guys so you can keep putting deals in the fund that's a great question and one of the reasons that we're partnering with some of the people that we're partnered with is because we have different specialties so me with my investing club and my multifamily portfolio i'm the one who kind of finds the multifamily the operators who do in mobile home parks rv parks this kind of stuff more on the commercial uh, side of things i have two partners uh, one was running basically a personal hard money fund um, where he could loan out his own money and the regulations are different if you're not raising capital sure. and then another she was raising a private money for a lot of her flips and things like that so they had experience in that private money space and so that was really nice for us to be able to put our heads together because when we sit in our investor committee to decide which deals we want to fund and which we have to pass on. Uh, It's really nice to have those different heads and that different uh, experience set informing the decisions that we're making as we're doing our committee meetings on on our assets. And as far as joint, uh, sorry, as far as deal flow, you're talking about, it's it's just networking. I used to get really frustrated when I was starting and I listened to a podcast episode and they say, where do you get your deals from? I was like, oh, they just come out of my network. Like I just went out and shook the palm trees and deals are coming everywhere. And I didn't have a network. You don't just go to some store and the back shelf at Walmart and buy yourself a network. It takes time to build that up. And I found myself being very frustrated at networking events because I'd be coming home from them thinking, I don't know if I met anybody there that, that I'm really going to be able to do a deal with, find a deal from. I just didn't really feel like it was going anywhere for a while. Uh, it was probably a year before I started really seeing um, the same people over and over again talking about deals and actually starting to get some traction with the network. And so I don't say that they come out of our network to be frustrating. I just say that to say you need to show up to the events again and again and again. So people know who you are, you know who they are. And if you're capable of raising money, people will bring you deals. And so you have that that lower barrier because now people will see us on social or hear us on a podcast or something and they're bringing us deals asking if we can fund it we have more deals than we can possibly fund we're actually better at finding deals than we are at finding money right right yeah it's a balancing act for sure deals money and mm-hmm. what's your favorite yeah. asset class right now i think that we're just in flux right now the capital markets are really shifting um like i said this rv park that has both cash flow and upside definitely my favorite um, yet at the same time, I'm not experienced with RVs and mobile home parks. And so I'm not really skilled at underwriting those. Um, this one that we're in right now was just a no brainer as far as the cash flow went. Um, 
So I, I am really liking that asset class right now. And I'm finding that the occupancies are still high. Um, we got seller financing on the deal that we're on right now. So I don't know if I like a particular asset class right now, as much as I like deals that have great financing, because if you're messing around in your spreadsheet and you're pulling levers to see if you can somehow get this deal structured in a way that will return to your investors what it needs to return in order to attract capital, the lever that has the most impact is the financing. You can change a little number in there and all of a sudden your deal looks very, very different. And that's one of the biggest levers we can pull that and probably exit cap is a one that's a highly manipulated to try and get returns to look good uh, to investors. And I feel like if you just, if you don't have a good loan on a project, it's just not going to yield what you need it to yield. And it introduces a level of risk that in many cases is unacceptable, not a good rate cap, uh, the DSCR might be off, um, debt yields. I, I just, I feel like the, the the debt is the biggest risk that you take on and has the biggest impact on the returns. And so right now we have seller financing fixed 4% for something like 13 years. Uh, that product doesn't exist in commercial uh, real estate markets. I'll give you another example of a deal we looked at. It's a couple of years ago before all this fallout came and uh, somebody sent me a pro forma of a building he just finished building and wanted us to just purchase, uh, you know, like a developer uh, who just uh, leases it up. And when it gets stabilized, he goes ahead and sells it. And he sends me this performance. I'm looking at it like, this is, this is crazy. Like the numbers he's asserting here are just nowhere near reality. And I came back to him and I said, um, your loan here says you have like a two and a quarter percent interest rate for this, uh, for 10 years or something like that. And I said, where did you get these numbers from? They're just not right. And he said, oh, no, that, that's actually from a, a lender quote. We get loans from our insurance company, our life insurance company. I thought, oh, okay, he's got an in with the lender that I don't have an in with. When I popped in my loan numbers that I could get from my broker, the deal completely fell apart. Right. But when I was seeing what he could do with his loan relationships, I thought, all right, this was a testimonial to me that the loan will make or break a deal. So that's what I, I'm really looking for right now. It's just a, a great loan product. Yeah, that makes total sense. It's so fascinating to me that we work so hard on the physical things, the appearance of the property, rents, collections. You know, that's like somebody's job every day to do those mm -hmm. things or maybe improve those things. And then it's just vastly overshadowed by the financial engineering. Yep. Like vastly overshadowed. So you know, that's the game we're playing. It just kind of scratched my head sometimes that you might get a tailwind that you had nothing to do with that completely changed the economics of a deal. And True. it wasn't anybody's, um, it wasn't, you know, it was literally just kind of fell in your lap or a headwind, right. That comes against yeah. you and the, the property's performing well, everything, all the, all the inputs that you have control over are doing well, but, but the loan terms change or, or whatever the case is. So really interesting there. And, and that's the game we're playing, but it's largely financial engineering, which is, mm -hmm. which is interesting. And um, yeah, I agree with you that the, the debt numbers have this huge, huge impact. So what do you guys look, we're talking early in 2024. What, what's the game plan kind of for the rest of the year ahead? What are you guys seeing out there? Uh, we are going to raise uh 15 million, got to fill up this, fill up this fund. Uh, we will continue to do um, a heavy representation in uh, debt notes, fix and flip loans, basically what it is. Yeah. Uh, one of the reasons we, I, I want to say we pivoted to hard money, but no, we've been in hard money this whole time. I, I have, I hold notes. I borrow on notes. 
we bought an apartment complex back in 2020 on a seller financing master lease, and we financed it with private notes from our investors instead of um, uh, equity partners. And so this has been something I've been doing all along. Uh, so I want to say pivoting, but really what we're doing is we're just more publicly pivoting that this is now what we're raising capital for from other investors, not just something that we're doing ourselves. Sure. So really focusing on the debt for the next year, I feel like the investor appetite for it is better because it's shorter term, especially right. with a newer fund. It allows them to get a relationship with us because money's coming back to them very frequently in the form of both the payments themselves on the on the interest payments, but also when the loan closes in six, nine, 12 months, and then their entire principal back. And that gives them the chance to get to know us, to see how we communicate, to see how they like us, to see what kind of deals. Because that whole time, even if they don't have money to invest, they're going to be seeing us bringing deals onto our platform and they're going to get a flavor for what's coming up. So that's really our plan for the next year is to finish fund one, getting that raised with a lot of debt deals, and then occasionally bringing in some really great equity deals that are a little bit more of a long-term play in that five-year hold time. Sure. So if somebody's coming in just as an investor, from an investor's perspective, they're putting 100K in the fund, what kind of return are they getting? What kind of lockout is it? What do they, what do they expect there? On the debt side, we're doing a 10 and 2, which is very competitive. Um, we do have some investors who, if they're bringing in larger amounts and they can fund the entire debt note on their own, uh, they can kind of name the interest rate that they want uh, because the more money you bring in, the more negotiating power you have. Mm -hmm. And so we'll go up to 12 and 2 depending on how that deal is being funded and if that's acceptable to the borrower. Because sometimes we're saying, oh, we'll do it 10 and 10 and two, but then we come back with a quote that says, well, this one's 12 and two. Um, and so we feel like we want to we want to be competitive there, but we also want to make sure that our investors are getting the uh, return that, that they're expecting uh, in that marketplace. So that's one thing that we're focused pretty heavily on. And then the equity deals, they've just got to be performing better than what everybody else is doing. Because when you look at enough of these things, don't they start to look the same? Oh, we got a 16.4 IRR with a 1.9 multi equity multiple over a five, always a five-year hold, you know, a refinance at two, three years. And just seeing the same thing over and over again. And even now, as the underwriting has shifted, I'm starting to see new patterns emerging for the same asset classes. And so we're saying, okay, multifamily that's in good shape looks like this, that's in poor shape looks like that. And so we just want to be able to bring it out at, at at or better than the market rate of what they're going to find everywhere else. And one of the advantages that we have is if we're bringing in a large chunk of cash into as in like if we're the LP, the fund is the LP, or if the fund is coming in a joint venture position, we're able to then use that relationship and that negotiating power with a pile of money or a pool of money behind us to go in and negotiate for better terms. Oftentimes, that's just a point higher of a preferred return. Instead of a seven, we're wanting an eight. They might be giving their $50,000 retail investors a 70-30 split. But because we're coming in with ours, we say, hey, we want an 80-20. And then what we can return back to our investors is like a 75-25. And so we're able to get our, our own interests met at the same time we're doing better for the interests of our investors. And I like that kind of win-win-win scenario because now the person who's giving us the better terms, that's one less investor group that they have to worry about if we can bring in a larger chunk. And they're always happy to give it. So everybody's walking away happy when, when we have a good negotiated uh, return solution. Yeah, I love it. Uh, Emma Powell, this has been very cool talking through all this. If somebody listening wants to connect with you, where do we send them? 
you can go to partnerwithrise.com. If you're on the YouTube one, you can kind of see it there on my little thing. Nice. Uh, that'll take you straight to our calendar link. And if you want to go read more about what we're up to, the same website, uh, risecapitalinvestments.co. And you can poke through our portfolio. You can click on investor login and go check out the portal there. Um, but mostly I think that this is a relationship-based business. And so the first step is usually a phone call to see if our interests align, if you are in a position to be able to invest in the type of deals that we're doing. And we like to talk to our investors pretty often. And so if you want to just jump on partnerwithrise.com and set up a phone call, we'd love to chat with you. Excellent. Well, we'll link to that in the show notes. If you're listening, you can click through and check that out. Um, Emma, this has been great. Thanks for your time. Thanks for breaking it down for the audience here and wish you guys continued success. Yeah, appreciate it. And I love that you asked the, the technical questions. Sometimes it's all about you know, wishy-washy type of, which I love the mindset and I love the abundance mindset. And that's a big part of what we do. But at the same time, I really like it. We can dive into the actual um, actionable strategies and tactics that people can employ in their own investing. Oh yeah, yeah, love no, love talking shop on this stuff. So wish wish you guys a bunch of abundant deal flow and excellent returns in twenty twenty four. Awesome, same to you, Devin. Thank you. Awesome, thanks, Emma. See you. Thank you for listening to the DJE podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.